This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Nathan Carlos Rupley, a foraging teacher and member of my local permaculture community. He splits his time between being a stay-at-home dad, self-employed artist, and aspiring hunter-gatherer. When not hanging out with his family or walking in the woods, you can find him reading about a wide range of subjects including simple living, foraging, native agriculture, natural building, primitive technology, philosophy, applied ecology, theology, and more. He brings this knowledge to the table today as we discuss what he's learning from the native plants of his ancestors. The exploration of these plants and the related cultures provide insights into his place in the world and where he comes from. This leads to a conversation that ranges around a variety of thoughts, including how we can learn more about plants and their uses by studying folk and Latin binomial names, the ways in which understanding ancestral plants can teach us about our identity, the impacts of colonization on the colonized and colonizer, and being good mentors and ancestors, now and for the future. Enjoy this time with Nathan, and I'll join you again after. I grew up back and forth between Burkina Faso in West Africa and Lancaster County. So some major culture shock going back and forth between there. And I have been an artist for all of my life, been interested in nature my whole life too, but didn't really know what to do with that side of things until I was working a job at a copy center and a guy came in and he had hunter-gatherer tattooed on his hands and he was getting a permaculture flyer printed out. And I said, your, your tattoos are funny. And he said, no, I'm serious. And you probably know that it was Wilson Alvarez who has been on your show multiple times. So, yeah, I, I wasn't happy in that job. And I learned more about rewilding and permaculture and really got into foraging. Wilson showed me my first couple plants. And then after that, I got booked by Sam Thayer and Steve Brill. And I would read those in the break room at work while I was on lunch and while I was on break and read them every chance I got at home and just really dove into it. Within a couple of years, I was already helping to teach foraging classes. And I've been doing that off and on since. I'm currently writing a book that includes foraging, but it's broader than that. So, yeah, that's about it. And that's where I know you is from the local permaculture community. And you've taught foraging to some of my friends. I just saw someone post to Instagram recently that they had foraged their dinner and referenced taking a class with you. And so it's through that and your work with mycorrhizal films and some of your things there to create, was it Gather? Was your DVD on local plants? Gathering. Gathering, right. Which is now out for free on YouTube. Perfect. And I can point people to that. So from that work initially with Wilson and then reading the books of Sam Thayer and Steve Brill, both of which have been on the show in the past, where did, has that taken you over the years and why this deep focus on plants and wild foods? That's been a crazy ride. It started with me just wanting to learn how to get away from civilization be able to find a way to, to run away as far as I could and live off of the land. And it's taken me to the place where I no, no longer want that at all. 
I just want to be a bridge for other people and just help be a good ancestor to people down the road, help put information out there so people can connect with nature and figure out what we can take from the past to move forward. My personal foraging life has really shifted over the years. I started out with mainly focusing on native plants and foraging strictly. My focus has really shifted over the years more towards weeds and invasives, and I keep on finding new angles to explore with them. And also just like tending the wild or semi-wild gardening where I'm working with mostly wild plants, but just growing them along the edge of our yard. We live in a cabin and we've got woods and llamas and goats all around us. But then we've got a small yard on all sides and all around that I'm tending different areas. And then I have one spot that is more heavily tended. It's still, most people wouldn't recognize it as a garden. It's got a raised bed with some radishes in it right now. People would recognize that, but the rest of it, they would just think it was a bank full of weeds. But really, I've got a lot of food in there and even more medicine. And why that move then from native plants to what we might consider weeds or invasives? Multiple reasons. And it doesn't mean that I've like completely moved away from the native plants, but I have found that it's easier to build a relationship with them in a way that is helpful to the ecosystems. With the native plants, I hate to harvest them heavily. And also just a lot of the weeds and invasives are growing right around me. Now, I do move native plants in, and I do assist the native plants that grow close by. But it's just easier to be able to harvest something where instead of making sure that in order to harvest regeneratively that you're like with the natives, I try and harvest them in a way that actually harvesting benefits them. Whereas with the weeds and invasives, I'm trying to find ways that the harvesting can push them back. And then more recently, what's really gotten me excited about the weeds and invasives is that I have been exploring my ancestry and my ancestry is mostly British, Spanish, and Mexican. And especially been looking into plants that were used by the Celts and Anglo-Saxons and different peoples of the British Isles and been discovering that many of these weeds that are growing all along everywhere pretty much, but all around my house. Not only do I have a relationship with them as a forager, but they were herbs and food of my ancestors. So I've been exploring that a lot lately. And finding connection to the places where your family came from and the plants that they cultivated? Yeah, or just that they wild harvested too. So it's been a real interesting journey. It's happening exploring decolonization and anti-racism work. And I had always thought decolonization was for Native Americans and other indigenous people. But I'm actually 
as I'm digging into my ancestry, realizing that as part of living on somebody else's land, I can be a better guest here if I learn about my history and the good and the bad aspects of that as I try and peel back my socialization as a white person and try and get back to the previous identities, all of which have their own set of good things and bad things. But it's really fascinating to move beyond the identity that I've been labeled with, understandably in our culture, but trying to dig deeper and find more of the roots of that. It's interesting in the circles I'm in, there's different extremes that I see in people trying to dig into their roots. On the one hand, there's my anarcho-primitivist friends who I agree with on a lot of stuff, and I come from that, but seem to sometimes think that if you're not going all the way back to the deepest hunter-gatherer roots, that you're not, it's not worth doing. And that's a painting with broad strokes, but I'm really learning to just follow my roots back as closely as I can and learn what I can and see the pros and cons of the way those people live. There's a lot more hierarchy in Celtic culture than there is in an immediate return hunter-gatherer band, but there's still a lot that can be learned there. And I think it's really helpful for us to learn where we come from and how really it wasn't that long ago that we were living fairly close to the land. On the other end of the, the extreme is white supremacists who also, and white nationalists, if there's really a difference there, who also enjoy looking to their roots. And I obviously have some disagreements with them and they don't like me very much. But I think they actually have some points, but then they totally misunderstand. I don't see how people can be exploring their tribal roots and yet somehow still sticking to a white identity when that white identity is the result of the erasure of those ancient cultures. So you're finding that this exploration includes a diversity of identities and relationships with plants as opposed to some kind of a singular cultural focus? Yeah. And the thing for me, because I have mixed ancestry, it's interesting. Most people do. And even if you dig back to Saxon roots, that was a people that colonized previous inhabitants and were then colonized. So it's all complex. And it's interesting, though, studying the plants. On the one hand, you see how each culture interacts with the plants differently, and they have a different set of plants that they interact with. But there is an awful lot of overlap. So if you go back far enough in my British ancestry, people would have been eating acorns as a staple food. Same thing for Spain. And not that long ago, for my Mexican ancestors, they're from the Nuevo Leon area and also southern Texas. They migrated back and forth across what is now the border. And one of the staple foods was acorns there, as well as some interesting plants 
one of which is sotol, which an alcohol is made out of, but it's also got edible parts. And where do you see the overlap of this exploration of your history and the plants? Are you finding new uses through this exploration, or is it that it's about the commonality between different cultures and the relationships that they have? A little of both. Mostly, it gives me a new significance to the plants that I already know. It also helps me to learn medicinal uses of them. So, For some reason, I can learn my plants fairly easily. I can remember pretty much everything I read about the edible uses of them. But I will read and reread the medicinal uses of them, and it just doesn't stick. I don't know why. Some plants, eventually, I get the basic understanding of that plant, but still, I can't remember a lot of the medicinal uses. And this is helping me. For some reason, I have been magnetized towards understanding how how these herbs were used by my ancestors. And so that kind of gives me a jumping off point other than just whatever health issues I might be having or know somebody that has to make it more real for me. But everybody's going to have their own path and explore things differently. So it sounds like then that the cultures that you're exploring as part of your ancestry, that the stories that come with those plant uses help to reinforce those medicinal or cultural uses. Yeah. Like I said, when I first started foraging, I got Sam Sayer's book and Steve Brill's book. And I liked all of them, but Sam Sayer is more up my lane of my personality and interest. And I obsessed over his books. I really like Steve Brill's books, but I was like, why are there so many folk tales and weird old English names of plants? And I was like, I just want to learn all the facts about these plants that like affect me directly in my life right now. How can I like use these plants? Why are there all these stories and weird names and stuff? Now it's funny as, as I started exploring my ancestry, I started running into these same names, old English names and Saxon names and stuff like that. And I started learning the meanings of those names and going back to Steve Brill's book and seeing that, oh yeah, a lot of this stuff that I skimmed over is the same stuff that I'm trying to research now. And so those are things like the common names that we might have for something as opposed to the botanical Latin and the way that those names differ across communities? Yeah. And something that's interesting about both the Latin and a lot of the folk names is that the name can tell you something about that plant. So, you know, in the Latin, the genus name tells you what small group of plants that's part of. And then usually the specific name describes something about that plant. And it's somewhat similar in a lot of the older names in Old English and Saxon and stuff like that. I've got ground ivy growing all around my house, and I make tea out of it and use it as a seasoning. And I remember reading about it being called alehoof, but didn't remember why. But in my recent exploration, I've discovered that that's because 
the ale is for ale because it was used to clarify beer and ale before hops was introduced to England. Another name for ground ivy is also gill over the ground. I understood the over the ground part because it's a mint that grows like a vine and spreads out over the ground. But the gill, I never understood why that name. Is gill some person from back in the day or why why is it called that? But actually the gill apparently comes from guillet, which is a French word for process of fermenting ale. So once again, the name gives you an idea about the plant and its uses. Which are again reflective of those cultures in which they were used. Yes. How are you finding these associations of plants with cultures? You mentioned the books of Steve Brill and Sam Thayer. My recollection in reading those is that they don't contain a lot of that, like folk tradition. So where has your research led you over the years? Yeah, Steve Brill does mention it here and there. And he definitely mentions a lot of the old names, even if he doesn't mention what culture they come from. So it's a combination. I've got a pretty massive library of books. And so the book Backyard Medicine, it's an American version of a British book, and it has a lot of that in it. And it's, it's all weeds and a few invasives. Also, Wild Urban Plants of the Northeast is a really good field guide by Peter Del Tradici. He has small sections at the end of each profile that mention a lot of this stuff. Just It's a real quick sentence or two, but it gives you a great place to, to like go from there. And then other than that, just Google. Just typing in Anglo-Saxon plant or edible wild plant of Spain. I've found some really good stuff on Google Scholar, really large study, traditional edible and medicinal wild plants of Spain. Went into a lot of detail, and it seems like both British and Spanish people have a tradition of cooking eggs with wild onions and wild greens. So that was interesting because that's something that I do. I'm not much of a chef. I'm an okay cook, but I mostly just make simple stuff and add in as many ingredients as I can. And I stumbled across basically the same the same thing that my ancestors were doing. Yeah, but a lot of just searching the web, reading through a lot of repetitive and difficult-to-read articles, and also then some stuff on YouTube. There's a YouTube channel, Fan Dabby Dozy, I think it is. The guy's from Scotland and interested in the Highland culture. His channel over, overlaps with a lot of my interests. So he covers his ancestors. He dresses in 17th century garb and goes out on long walks through the mountains and talks about edible and medicinal plants and also a lot of traditional martial arts of the area. With this exploration of language and names and the cultures that you come from, you mentioned earlier about the way that this is also helping you unpack colonization. How has this had an influence on you as someone in the United States who grew up both in Africa and here? How does all that blend together? 
Yeah, I have a lot of trauma from both being adopted as a small child and then traveling so much as a kid. And this has helped me work through that in a lot of ways. I don't know if I can describe exactly the ways, but there's something just very comforting about being connected to the land here and what's going on with the plants here and then realizing how connected that makes me to the places that I come from. And it happens with a lot of the Native American plants too. If you look at ramps like Wild League, they are very similar to Ramson's from England and used in all the same ways. So it just, it draws bridges. For somebody that has felt that there was huge cultural gaps in their life, that's really nice to have those bridges to just help you walk through life in a more connected, more grounded way. It reinforces, as we often talk about in permaculture, that sense of place or a sense of home. Yes. And how universal, how universal it is. It's interesting because it makes you realize how specific each place's connection is, but also how each place having its special, unique connection is part of this universal tapestry of cultures that, for all their differences, have a lot in common. Though it's a bit pithy, I think of the line that everybody eats and how food can connect us, and then how if we have an understanding of all of those culinary herbs and the foods that we eat now and where they come from, that it makes the world a smaller place to know that this seasoning is from this island here or this particular food tradition comes from this culture that we wouldn't normally connect with our daily eating. Yeah, and it just helps me to remember that everything has roots. For the longest time, I was really angry at our culture and didn't understand why we do so many of the things that we do that are so destructive to the land and to other people. And I still wrestle with it, but I've been increasingly realizing that for all the bad stuff that comes with civilizations colonizing other people and stealing their traditions and their information and making it their own, one slight positive is that everything in our civilization has roots somewhere that lead back to ancient peoples who lived a different way. So it's really helping me to remember to see positive. I wish I could remember who I was having the conversation with, but we were talking about how a lot of culture is about exchange. And I think about permaculture and the edges and that minus those acts of violence or invasion, that there is a lot of exchange between cultures and communities on those spaces where they mix and blend. And it provides an opportunity for growth and continued exploration of people who are similar, but not necessarily like us. Yeah, yeah. And even in situations of colonization, we tend to think of the colonizer as defeating the colonized. But in my studies of African cultures, and now I'm seeing it in my studying European cultures, a lot of times the colonization is the elite class comes in, takes over, and introduces new ways of doing things but a lot of the peasant and indigenous people still 
are able to keep some of their ways. And it's something that's been helping me see more gray area. You know, coming from an anarcho-primitivist background, I tend to be fairly black and white sometimes. Learning about cultures in West Africa where they were colonized by another African culture that was more of a farming culture and more of a warrior culture. And so the chiefs are male warriors with ancestry to the other culture that conquered them. But they also then have land chiefs, which can be men or women, and they speak for the land. They don't have political power, but they have huge social weight that their voice carries. And so those cultures, in some ways, have a shell of an agricultural culture with a horticultural and hunter-gatherer culture still somewhat living within that. The way then that they have a dominant hegemony that rests over the top of this, but the people who are living their lives on the ground still continue many of these older traditions? Yes, very much. And were you brought to studying the cultures of Africa and these traditions because of your time in Burkina Faso? Yeah. There, there's actually been two, two things that have made me go back and study this. One is that my dad had a bunch of old books that he gave me that included studies of some of the cultures in Burkina and neighboring countries. And then another is coming across a YouTube video by the mathematician Ron Eaglash. I think that's how you say his name. Anyway, he's extremely interested in fractals. And he discovered that if you look at aerial photos of African villages, they are often built on fractals. So he got a grant and traveled around for a year, basically asking different people in African villages across the continent, why do you do this? And he found out a lot of really fascinating stuff. I won't go into all of it right now, but basically discovering that African cultures knew, not just intuitively, but academically knew a lot of things that Europeans didn't discover about mathematics until much, much later. So my interest in patterns brought me into that and had me start looking back at African cultures that I was familiar with. It reminds me of all of the indigenous knowledge that was picked up and adopted and adapted to permaculture over the years and through the education and retelling hasn't necessarily been well documented or attributed through this work? Yeah, I really love the knowledge found in permaculture, but also do wish that more credit was given to where it comes from. And I think that's part of these conversations like we're having today is that as we're discussing these common names or folk names of plants and where things come from and the traditions that they were used within, that we can continue to expand this so that it becomes a regular part of our discussion of, oh, well, our understanding of this piece comes from here, and here's a technique that you'll find in these arid lands of this country, as opposed to just bringing it all together and saying, well, here is the knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And I think it's important for people that have been socialized into white culture their whole lives to learn that we have a past, a diverse past with ancient cultures that knew a lot of things that we can learn about 
throughout my time rewilding for the longest time, I was finding myself feeling guilty because I felt like I was just mining information from all these other colonized peoples that <laughs> had some anthropologist go and learn all about them and then report it back to us. And so here I am having the privilege of being able to just like mine information from people all the, all around the world, being able to shift towards looking back to my own roots just really helps and has helped with that white guilt. I don't think I'm often accused by white supremacists that I debate with online of just living in guilt all the time. And no, so much of my decolonization work is acknowledging wrongdoing and then moving through it. It's not wallowing around in guilt. Yeah, you're going to have to occasionally find some areas where you might feel guilty about some things and maybe rightly, but it's not a wallowing. It's a learning, finding your own roots, seeing how your ancestors mistreated people and how they were mistreated by people. And it, it really helps bring us into more of an understanding. Obviously, it's farther back in some people's past. It's still happening to some people now. But yeah, it helps you helps you to gain more of an understanding of how complex history is. And the way that you express that, I think about how sometimes when we need to heal something, we're going to hurt a lot more to go through it. And that feeling of guilt can be an expression of that pain of working through this understanding and getting to the root of it so that we no longer perpetuate those kinds of things in the world as people who are just trying to do better every day and make the world a more bountiful place for all life. Yeah. I've heard some people say hurt people and I've been trying to dig through all my trauma. <laughs> I've got a lot of it like most people and just dig through that and see what I can build out of it and how I can use that to learn to be a better person. I'm never going to work through it all. The journey is not always easy, but it's a reward in, a, in and of itself. When I think about my own path in many of these places and just being able to name and acknowledge what I've experienced and then using that as a place to continue to move through it and to work through things to pull off the veil of my own ignorance or in at times being able to just admit I have no idea about this subject or about what I'm experiencing, but I'm trying to figure it out and being able to be patient with ourselves and with others. Yeah, I very much agree. I have a tendency to, once I think I've discovered a truth, really hold on to it very hard. But thankfully, I've had people come around and knock some sense into me occasionally. I think a lot of people, especially those of us socialized as white, are pretty sensitive when it comes to issues of race. And I just want to thank my friend, Joe Whittle, for, he's Native American from the Delaware Nation and Cato. One time I got in a debate with him and he called me out and it hurt my feelings. It made me feel stupid. I argued even harder with him. And then I started to obsess over it and tried really hard to 
in my head disprove him. There was an argument over invasive plants and I guess actually invasive insects. I eventually came to the realization that part of why I was working so hard to prove him wrong was because I was having a fight within myself and realized that, you know what, maybe when a Native American person tells you how your ideas about invasive species affects them, maybe you might know some things that they don't, but maybe just take a step back and listen and see if you can learn something. And so that caused a huge shift in my life because I very often turn tune people out if I think that what they're saying is ridiculous. And I just assume that I know what's right and really hard to when somebody confronts me with something that I just think is ridiculous to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and ask whether maybe my response to it doesn't say more about me than it says about them. I think it's something that I've run across quite a lot between like the work of Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people or Paulo Coelho and the four agreements. Very often what we're experiencing is not about other people. It's about us and what we're going through and trying to have the space. What I keep coming back to is we've been having this conversation is that second ethic of permaculture when it comes to people care, that really that's what I keep thinking about when it comes to this conversation is that understanding where we come from and the plants that matter and how they've had an impact on us as a person because of perhaps what we connect with or just because of the society that we come from, that gives us better insights into ourselves. And then that by taking these kinds of actions and understanding the impacts that have occurred before, the damage that has been done to other cultures and peoples as well as to ourselves, gives us that space to really begin to dig in deep below the surface beyond just making sure that people have a roof over their heads or enough food in their bellies. Yeah, yeah. And some of what you were saying there really brought me back to something I actually wanted to talk about. And it's in the book that I'm writing is I'm going to have a whole section on how to approach the discussion of how we interact with people brings me back to approaching plants. You approach a plant very differently than a human. They're constructed very differently. But the basics of doing that are very much the same. And one of the things that my process has evolved over the years, but a practice I try and make when I'm approaching plants is to stop, take a step back. That could be physically or just my mental perspective or both, but take a step back. And instead of going right into that plant and diving into the details of it, look at the plant, see what's shading it. What is it shading? How much sun is it getting? What kind of ground is it in? Is the ground sloped? How is it sloped? What plants are growing around it? Are there other plants of the same species? If so, are they growing in some sort of a pattern you can figure out? How's it relating to the other plants around it? Are there mushrooms that you can tell are interacting with it in some way or animals or just to take this big step back and look at the situation the plant is in and then move in to observe the details. Look 
at the patterns. What do those patterns tell you what family of plants that's from? What does that tell you about how you can interact with it? And then from there, learning to interact with it and learning to humble yourself and realize that this plant has information that you can't get any other way. And you can go to the books and it's great, and I do, and you can learn about it. But just interacting with that plant can teach you. Now, whether we can argue about whether there's some magical spiritual force that the plant is aware and trying to teach me in this moment, or whether it's just that the world is so complex and I can only learn about it by interacting with it, I'm not sure, and I don't care to debate. But yeah, just trying to observe the world around you and remember that you're seeing it through different lenses and that maybe it can teach you stuff that books can't teach you. I know that often there's a running tenor in the permaculture community about woo and metaphysical pieces and spirituality and how all of those things come together. But in thinking through what you just said, that there's something to be pulled from the principles of practice, that if we sit and observe and interact, we can see what plants are growing together in that community, that there is a lot that we can find by being in the space with plants, by spending time in nature that are not readily available in the literature or what we may be able to find in a class without that hands-on experience in the place that we call our habitat. Yeah, that's one of the things that I struggle with when I'm doing my plant walk is how do I take people that I've probably never met before in a couple hours, they're going to go their own way and I may, may not see them again. And how do I introduce them to the plant instead of spouting facts to them? I love this about facts about plants. It's fun for me. And there's so many interesting things that I would love to just place in people's heads and <laughs> have them walk away with that. But to try and remember to once again, slow down and better to teach people the patterns of the plant families and introduce them to a few different species. But there's, there is some importance to being like, see this landscape here. It's not even a very pristine landscape. And yet there's 50 different edible and medicinal plants right here. But after a certain point, nobody's going to remember anything I say. So more important just to help guide people to learn how to teach themselves and to learn from the plants. As one of my mentors said once to me, that we can be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage and lead people to information rather than just to regurgitate it onto them. Yeah. Now, I think it's one term for it is coyote mentoring. And I think that is extremely important. One thing I wrestle with is that it takes a lot of skill to be a coyote mentor. And it's also, it really is in a two hour class, it's hard to mentor somebody that you don't have a relationship with. It's very hard to learn enough about them to figure that out. And I know from some of the permaculture and rewilding classes that I helped teach in that I know I did not do a very good job when I was trying to coyote mentor. I ended up 
alienating people by I was answering their questions with a question, but my personality, maybe it came off across, came across more prickly than I realized I was being. And so it's one of those things where it's on me to do the inner tracking in myself to learn my emotions, learn my triggers, learn my strengths and my weaknesses, and try and figure out how to meet people where they're at. But it is, it is really hard to try and mentor somebody in a brief class. I'm very jealous of cultures where there was apprenticeship and stuff like that. It's one of the things that I'm going through now as we're having this conversation. I'm designing a new series of course offerings, and it's what can I distill down that are the essentials to share with someone? Because it's so easy for my own passion to come through and want to share everything that's possible. And then it becomes just like an hour of an information cram trying to drink from the fire hose. But what I hear there, like in your comments about coyote mentoring, is I think about like the Socratic method and being able to give enough information that we can raise additional questions to continue to guide students where they want to go. And yeah, being able to do that as a teacher and an instructor in only a short amount of time and not having a lot of information, it's what can I pick and choose that will be helpful to this person so that they get out of this class what they're looking for, while also giving them something that they're going to take away from it that's going to stick with them for years to come. Yeah, very much. I'm really wrestling with that with my book. I've got a section on six. <laughs> You would think a section on sticks would be fairly quick. You know, I'm pretty obsessed with sticks, and they're such versatile tools. Yeah, I could write an entire book just on digging sticks and berry hooks and all just all the various uses of sticks. But at a certain point, like in a book that covers as many topics as mine does, you can't do too much of a deep dive. Now, sticks is something I think are pretty foundational to human tools and tool making. So I probably will err on the side of including more on, on that topic. But yeah, it's, I'm finding that it's a very fine balance knowing just because I'm obsessed with this topic doesn't mean that the book needs to include every single detail that I know about it. But as I'm writing it, I'm figuring out how to give people like a place to start. I really like the time that we spent together today and all the places that you've taken us. But before we draw it to a close, is there anything else you want to share before I ask you for your final thoughts? Just that people would look into inner tracking and start learning about themselves. And then just to plug my book, it's called Earth Living becoming useful to the land, culture, and self. And I've got a Patreon at patreon.com slash Nathan Ropley. And then from that, what are the final thoughts that you have for the listeners? Yeah, I would just like to thank you for providing the opportunity for this conversation. Would love to interact with you more on various topics that we share interests in. And for people listening, I just want to offer assistance if you want any help knowing where to start on how to interact with plants or look into your ancestry and anything related to that, you can find me on social media or just email me, whatever you want. 
Do you have any social media accounts or an email address or anything that you'd like to give out? Yeah, I can give an email address, Nathan Ripley at yahoo.com. Awesome. And I'll make sure that I link to your social media because I'm pretty sure that I follow you on Instagram and a couple other places so people can find you out there in the world. But we had such a wide ranging conversation from the ways that we can teach and have an impact in students' lives to what we can do to uncouple from the identity we might find ourselves living in to healing trauma and connecting to plants. It's really been a great time to have you here. And I'm sorry it took so long to do this. We've been in touch for so long, but I'm glad we finally got the opportunity to sit down and do this. So thank you so much, Nathan, for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And that was Nathan Carlos Rupley. As he said, as we wrapped up, you can email him at nathanrupley at yahoo.com with any comments or questions. If you want to learn more about how to rewild your yard or would like to join him for a foraging class or plant walk. I've also included links in the show notes to where you can find him around the web, as well as to his YouTube channel, where you can watch Gathering and other pieces on foraging. Nate reminds me that wherever we come from before studying permaculture, whether doctor, tech nerd, stay-at-home parent, or an artist in a copy shop, there's more to learn than any of us can accumulate, even if we had lifetimes to study. What we learn along the way can also take us to unexpected places. Even though we start in the landscape, discussing plants, animals, ecology, and design, we only begin there. If we're interested, our exploration can take us much further, to a myriad of different places, as we seek to practice not only where we are, but as who we are. Whatever you are called to do, there is a place within the permaculture community for you. What are you doing right now? that makes the world a more bountiful place. If you're finding something difficult or feel stuck, what would help you take your next step? Let me know. Until the next time, spend each day learning more about plants and your ancestors while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>